Wow, it's uh, just a huge privilege to be able to talk to you on Easter Sunday. Real privilege. Because uh, from a Christian's perspective, it's got to be the best day of the year. Um, better than Christmas, this is the day that puts everything in perspective. It's the day when we remember Jesus dying for us when he stood between us and the wrath of God. When he suffered brutal torture and execution at the hands of the Romans so that we could live. So it would take a a load of sermons to do justice to all the implications of that act of love. And today I'm just going to focus in on one aspect, the aspect that brings us hope. Uh, My title for the sermon, if there is one, is A Vision of Heaven. So perhaps that gives you an idea of where we're headed. But first I'd like to take us on a whistle-stop tour, a journey which is going to pick up from Kumbalani's excellent sermon last week with the raising of Lazarus and then on to the death and resurrection of Jesus and beyond. So if you're listening to this on the podcast and you haven't heard last week's sermon yet, stop, rewind, have a listen to that first and then pick this back up. Welcome back. So, so we looked at the story of Lazarus and how Jesus raised him from the dead. Right? And as you can imagine, this was like an incredible event for everyone who witnessed it, but not just because someone just not just because someone had come back to life. So all devout Jews, they'd come to believe in something that was called the resurrection. And they'd been taught it, they were looking forward to it, but they didn't really know what it was. And they were just taking it on faith that this was something that was going to happen. Can you imagine that? You think there's such a thing as resurrection and you really hope it's true. And because you're living in a Jewish community, at the very least you're going to pretend that you believe it. But probably you're not really sure what to think. So Jesus has heard about the death of Lazarus. He's friends with the whole family, and he heads off in the direction of their home. Everybody lived miles apart, and he had to walk everywhere. And along the way, he meets one of Lazarus's sisters, Martha, who's come out, heard he's coming. She's rushed to meet him. And um, we're going to stay in John a lot today. So if you want to just turn to John 11, this is where we'll pick up the story. John 11 and verse 21 to 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Wow. So, well, at least Martha certainly seemed to know what she believed. Now, note, in the story... Jesus didn't actually go to their house quickly. You know, he waited a few days, 
just to make sure that Lazarus was properly dead, not just trying to get out of the housework. He gets there and there's this crowd of mourners and they all trot down to the tomb to pay their respects. And Jesus is like, open it. And they're like, dude, it'll stink. And Jesus is like, open it, please. And they're like, whatever, dude. And Jesus is like, Lazarus, out you come. And Lazarus is like, now that's what I call a power nap. (laughs) And the crowd is like, whoa, no way. And suddenly they know it's all true. Death, resurrection, the kingdom of God, all true. If this guy can come back, anyone can come back. So for those with open eyes and ears, you can imagine that did their faith, the power of good. That many of them had been patiently waiting for the Christ, the one who would save them. And as long as they could put down their preconceived ideas about what the Christ, the Messiah, would be like, they would see that here he was, in the flesh. And he held power over death. John 12. That's at the start of this chapter, we see Mary, who's Lazarus's other sister, and she's clearly got it. The penny is dropped. He's the one. She takes some really, really expensive perfume. She pours it over him. Now, I don't know how well she understood the significance of what she was doing there, but Jesus knew that she was anointing him for burial, which was another of the Jewish customs, even though he was yet alive. Now, and greedy Judas Iscariot, who was full of jealousy about the cost of the perfume, he criticizes Mary for this. <clears throat> then in John 12, Verse 7, Jesus says this, Leave her alone, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Moving on to John 12, 23, 23 to 25. So Jesus is talking about his own death, and he talks in these terms. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a strange way to talk about your own death. Glorified. Be given honour. Distinction. But Jesus was killed in a way reserved for the worst of criminals. Glorified? Yes, glorified, because this was the height of Jesus' purpose here on earth. His pièce de résistance, the ultimate reason he came. This wasn't a swan song, a last dying act. This was an act that ushered in a new era. An era when all humans everywhere could now approach God, the creator of the universe, to become part of his purposes and to receive the gift of of everlasting life. So Jesus says that a grain of wheat has to fall to the earth and die if it is to bear much fruit. You think about it. A grain of wheat could go on to become a small part in a loaf of bread. Or it could be planted and grow into a plant that produces many seeds. And those seeds could be planted and themselves 
produce yet more seeds. And that one original seed could be the progenitor, the ancestor of thousands, millions of seeds. So for there to be much fruit, Jesus had to die. The details of that belong in a different sermon, but for now, let's just be awestruck that Jesus could see and accept that in his death, many would be saved. And he says, whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he's getting more and more explicit as he talks about what's going to happen next. Still not with crystal clarity, because the things he's saying were for those with open hearts not for those who were rejecting him. Now in John 12, still in John 12, verse 31 to 36, we read this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered, answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The ruler of the world will be cast out. He's talking about Satan, the leader of the opposition against God, the ruler of this dark world. And watch carefully. Because Satan is about to lose. John 13. John 13, 31 to 35. Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So it's all about God's glory. It's about love and God's glory. And these are the underpinning principles of the whole universe. God's glory and love which is a sermon in itself. Now, if his disciples are getting this, you can probably bet they're starting to get a little bit spooked. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What's that about? But look, look how he loved them. John 14, 1 to 7. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, I go to prepare a place for you, he says. Now we're starting to see a glimpse of this hope 
that I've been alluding to. Jesus is the way. The way to what? Let's keep going. John 14, 23. John 14, 23 to 31. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he will come, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not, of the world, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So there's that ruler of the world again. Jesus is about to mess up his agenda. Satan thinks he has the power, the right, to destroy Jesus. After all, Satan thinks that earth is his realm. Oh, how wrong can he be? Also, see in that passage, Jesus has promised to send the Holy Spirit. Hang on to that point, because we'll come back to it. Now, Jesus 15, 1 to 6. Jesus 15, 1 to 6, and Jesus is speaking. Sorry, I'm not Jesus. It's been a long week. John 15, 1 to 6. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he t- I'm going to listen to the tape running if you like. Oh, Rob! <laughs> every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So agricultural metaphors worked well in that day. People understood the principles. If you have a plant that's not doing anything, that's gone bad, you just get rid of it. Burn it. But those plants that are doing well, they're in for some painful attention, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Unless you're a gardener. Now, I remember uh, when my family lived in a little town called Stone in Staffordshire, and we had a neighbour. She was a really interesting lady. I think she was probably into the occult. Anyway, she frequently became obsessed about boundaries. She didn't like anything from our garden coming into hers. We had this honeysuckle that grew in the front garden. And if you know about honeysuckles, you know they're pretty unruly plants. They go where they want to. They don't respect boundaries. And so this plant would poke its stems through into our neighbour's garden and she'd nip off the stems as they came through. Little did she know that this made the plant stronger. Now, wherever a stem or bud was nipped, it would divide and grow two stems 
in that place. And in her effort to stop this plant encroaching on her land, she just made it all the more hardy, all the more vigorous, all the more fruitful. God prunes us because he loves us and it makes us more fruitful. It's a painful process, that, but it's so wise and far better than being discarded and thrown into the fire. And note verse 3. Just, just have a look at this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean. John 16, 25 to 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. That ruler of the world, Satan, is about to be sorely disappointed. John 18, 11. John 18, 11. And here we see Jesus' obedience. The guards have come to arrest him. And his disciples are scared, witless. And Peter lashes out with his sword. And Jesus, incredibly, the calm voice once more. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's going to do it. But we're not quite there yet. John 18, 33 to 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, most modern, postmodern of comments, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Are you getting a sense of what's coming? The hope that we're approaching? Whatever it is that God is saving for us, it's going to be better than this. And so the Romans do it. They crucify Jesus. They beat him brutally. They kill him in one of the cruelest ways they knew how. And Satan thought he'd won. 
He thought it was all over. But it wasn't all over. No, it was only just beginning. I don't think in this lifetime we can truly understand the battle that then raged. What it was that Jesus, who was God, went through. Dying, dying with all that sin on him and passing into a place where God doesn't even allow his presence to be felt, separated, torn from the most precious relationship there's ever been and ever will be. But what we do know is that whatever battle he then fought, he won! Let's just nip into Matthew 27 for a moment. We'll come back to John. Matthew 27, because something happened that is just too good to miss. Matthew 27, just back a few books, verse 50 to 53. And so he's on the cross now, it's just about to end. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Interesting side note, in the King James it says, gave up the ghost, which is where the expression gave up the ghost came from. I don't know if you knew that. Yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Say what now? A whole bunch of dead Christians just come back? Lazarus was just the appetizer. This is Jesus thoroughly trouncing death. Booyah! (laughs) Take that, Hades. Sorry, I'm a bit excited. (laughs) Jesus is turning things upside down. You don't have to turn to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, and we've sung this today at least twice, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Back to John. John 20. John 20, 19 to 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. That was like, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side where he'd been nailed and pierced. And then the disciples were glad, understatement, when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So he's back. The disciples, man, their minds must have been blown it's one thing to hear Jesus speak about going and coming back to them. It must have been another thing entirely for him to have stood among them. And that promise, remember, the one about the Holy Spirit, he hasn't forgotten it. He's following through. And it's a bit of a two-part of promise, this. Sort of like, you know, when you eat a curry, and at first you think, 
Hey, not bad. I can handle this. And then a couple of mouthfuls later, you're like, fire, fire, everything's on fire. And that's exactly what happened. Acts 2, 1 to 4, don't, don't turn there. Acts 2, 1 to 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's the fire. And so we see how one promise is fulfilled, the one about sending the Holy Spirit. So this means that Jesus is true to his word. So that must mean the other promise, the one about preparing a place for us, that must be true too. And this, this is where the hope comes from. The hope of a future beyond all this, beyond this life, beyond the trials, the daily battles, there's an outstanding promise, which we know, we know is going to be fulfilled. Thank you, Jesus. But what is it? What is it? We use the word heaven. What does that mean? What happens when we die? What happens next? Many people want to know the answer to that question. And there's been an upsurge in recent years, haven't there, of books on this sort of subject, people who say they've been to the next place and they come back, and I get it. We really want to know. We really want it to be true. But I've got to tell you, the only safe source of information about life about after death is the Bible. So that's where we're going to stay. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And you know what I said about the fulfillment of the promise about the Holy Spirit? It must mean that we depend, we can depend on the other promises. And that point's repeated here. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we will be saved. So right now we're at home in the body, living in flesh and blood. This is our tent. Our tent, once this body is destroyed, once we die, we can look forward to a new body, a new building from God, which for those of us whose bodies aren't in the best shape, that's something we're eagerly anticipating. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 
21 to 23. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Depart and be with Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul was looking forward to. So, okay, so far we've got a new heavenly body, be with Christ. Great, but wait, there's more. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 26. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power and authority. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there's something else going on here. To start with, there's a transition to a place where we're in a different body and we're with Christ. But this is not the same as being made alive in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And it's clearly not the same as rising, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. So it looks like those of us who die go to be with Christ. But then we're waiting for the great event when Jesus comes back to earth and those who are dead will rise again. And that sounds like we'll once more be back in an earthly type of body. And all the living believers will join the risen believers to be with God. Okay, so what about those who don't believe? What happens to them immediately after they die? Well, I don't think that on this the Bible is quite so clear. We get a bit of insight in a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16. This is Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, different Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off 
and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what do we make of this? I'm I'm not sure other than to suggest that those who haven't accepted Jesus and followed him, when they die, they go somewhere else, somewhere less pleasant. I don't think we can take the parable literally. Because like all Jesus' parables, the real meaning is something that's got to be pondered carefully. But there certainly appears to be a difference in destiny for the afterlife. But there's still hope. 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, 9-13. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, right at the end, the whole shebang is going to be renewed. Heaven, earth, bodies, the lot. Meanwhile, God is looking for all people to repent. He doesn't wish that anyone should be lost, should perish. And so, even even though we have hope for our future destiny, we also have work to do to show his love and his glory to the world until he returns. And when he does return, what's that going to be like? What will this new heaven and this new earth look like? Now, I tend to think that one of the reasons that God speaks to us in pictures and parables is that our minds are just too limited right now to understand what the next life will be like. These life after death books, they trouble me because we have a tendency to cling on to them, those visions of the afterlife, instead of on to the word of God. So let's not do that. I know it's a difficult book to understand and interpret, But for our last scripture today, let's turn to Revelation. I'm going to read a chunk of this. I know there have been lots of scriptures today, but you can't really do justice to Easter without it. 
So, Revelation starting at chapter 20 and verse 11. I just encourage you, really listen here, because this is the most exciting bit of all. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Into chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We're out of time. I'd love to read the rest of this, but, you know, if you really want to get it, just carry on reading right the way to the end. Because this, this is the hope we cling to, the future we're looking towards. And however long it is, before Jesus returns to earth, we know that he will come and he will reign and we will be with him forever. We thank you, Lord, for that hope. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that those who love you, who have gone before us, are with you. We thank you that we will be reunited. We thank you that you will reign We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom will come and is coming.